Chapter Seven of the Last of the Vikings by Johann Boyer, translated by Jesse Muir. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Seven. It is possible to sleep and think at the same time. A somnambulist can find his way where a waking man has to stand still. Christopher Miran slept, but while he slept, he was working at the seal. It was as if the boat had been sulky all day and refused to go willingly. She had capsized three winters running, and had begun badly to-day by not keeping up with the others. Christopher slept, but all the time he was trying and trying to find out what was the matter with the boat. In the middle of the night he started up. He was lying nearest the door, and now he swung his feet over the edge of the bunk and crept out. The wind and the snow dashed in his face, but he felt his way to the mast, pushed the sail to one side, and raising the tarpaulin that covered the cargo, stood thinking for a moment. He was not wide enough awake to know quite what he was doing, but he took hold of a barrel of salt and moved it a few yards farther aft, and then did the same with a heavy box and a sack of flour. He then replaced the tarpaulin and returned to the cabin. He was wet with snow and chilled through and through, but he fell asleep, and this time he did not think in his sleep. The weight of the cargo was shifted farther back, and Christopher felt that the boat was happier, and therefore he slept without dreaming. Henry Robin was always the first to get up, for he wanted time to wash himself, to snuff up a little sea-water, and to comb his hair and beard. He did not say that others ought to do the same, but he liked to do it himself. Long before daylight appeared, all the boats left the harbour, and turned northward again. The snow was falling thickly, and they could see only a few boat lengths ahead, but there was a good wind, and on the seal Cornelius was keeping a lookout. Sail and rigging became heavy with wet snow, and the boat had to be emptied of snow now and again. The beards and the hair of the men grew white, and the men themselves were like snowmen when they stood still for a few minutes. But they sailed on, and rocks and islands flew past them through the falling snow. The sailing began in real earnest only when they again came out into open water and steered northward across Folla, and now the men on the seal began to look at one another. The boat seemed to be in a better humour to-day. She went more easily over the waves and sped along as if relieved from some burden. When she gradually gained upon the sea-fire and the sea-flower, and then ploughed steadily and surely past them, Cornelis could not help dancing about in the forepart, clapping his hands and singing. The headman stood at the helm, and looked better pleased than he had done the day before, but there was still something about the boat that was not right. He knew it by the yielding in rigging and hull. There was a defect that he must find and correct. Day after day they sailed on, close-hauled in fair wind, or in headwind when they had to tack or simply shelter behind a headland and wait. They went through sounds and out over open sea, and one day it snowed and another it would be clear. It was always cold, and the first thing that Lars and Arndt learned was to stand still hour after hour in the limited space in the boat and feel frozen. The snow beat in their faces and the salt spray dashed upon their backs, 
Their feet grew stiff with cold even when they beat them together every now and then, but in a steady wind there was nothing to do but find their sea legs and put up with the cold. It seemed to Lash that all the men on board began to resemble one another. They stood still and saw the same things and thought about the same things, and their faces were simply a reflection of wind and weather, sky and sea. They grew more like one another every day. It was only the headman who stood alert at the helm from the moment they set off in the morning until they cast anchor again in the evening. If he ate anything in the middle of the day, he took the food in his unoccupied hand and bit the piece off without knowing in the least what it was, while with the other hand he swung the tiller, his eyes darting rapidly from rigging to sea. He stooped down to look forward under the sail. He pushed the tiller quickly out to one side if the boat had suddenly to go about, and his face showed when a gust was coming. He shouted an order, and all the time he munched his crust of bread. The days passed. They were grey days, and the sea was grey, and the naked rocks, and grey too were the clouds that rested on the mountain summits. White gulls hovered in the air above the boats, and a flock of black cormorants rose out of a shadow and flew farther out to sea with hoarse cries. Two or three red houses were congregated in the shelter of an island, and then came miles of sea and rock again. It was a dark land with its brooding gaze turned upon the wintry fog. In the dusk a beacon light flashed out of the mist and the white beams seemed to be seeking for someone to help. A yellow light appeared on shore in an inlet, probably in a little cottage, and then there were miles of darkness before the next light. Those who pass on the sea know that fjords run up into the land, where the mountains are clothed with forest, and farms lie along the shore, and out of these fjords come sail after sail and turn northward with the rest, leaving the grey coast behind them, with more and more banks and tradesmen before whom the fishermen must tremble if they cannot this time find the particular place where the shoals of cod are to be found. One morning when they were going northward past Halgilan, Lars's attention was attracted by a boat that came out from behind a headland and was different from the Lofoten boats he knew. "'Why, look there!' he said, turning to Cornelis. "'Well, have you never seen a boat before?' said Arndt Olson, unable to see that there was anything remarkable about this one. "'Yes, that's a Nulan boat,' said Cornelis. "'She's good enough in her way, but she can't keep up with us.' Lars continued to gaze at her. She was smaller than a stad's boat, and had no topsail, and the headman did not stand to steer, but sat comfortably on the seat.' but the whole boat was pretty, and her lines were graceful, and she darted along as if at any moment she might rise into the air and fly like a seabird. She was a Nulan ten-oared boat, and her crew, in yellow southwesters and oilskins, spoke a softer, more sing-song dialect. The number of Nulan boats increased, and the fairway seemed crowded with sails. Here a sloop raised her grey square sail above the others, there a black-hulled Galeas ploughed her way through the throng, or a solitary steamer vomited its smoke into the air, all on their voyage northward through snow and storm. 
For three days they lay weather-bound in Buda, and during this time the crew of the seal were all on shore except Arndt Olsen, who was so exhausted with all he had gone through lately that he felt he would have to rest if he was ever to be himself again. And there he lay, and trembled whenever he heard the shouts of the drunken seamen in the town. Late in the evening, Eleazar's Hilla crept in, smelling of spirits, and began to tell him about Jakob. He, <laughs> he, he was really killing this time. Not really, man. But Eleazar's told him that it was in a tavern, and he himself was glad he had got away before the police came. They were some Bergen men with whom Jakob, damn it all with a limp, had had a disagreement. Eleazar's then lay down and went to sleep, and one by one the others came on board. Christaver handled Cornelis somewhat roughly, for he opened the cabin door and threw him into the bunk head first. Henry Robin was the last to come, and it was late when he came down to the harbour, and he walked slowly, for he was carrying Jakob on his back. It was still pitch dark the next morning when Christaver roused the other men. The weather was still stormy, but he meant to set out, for he was tired of lying there, waiting. While they were swallowing a little coffee, Eleazar's told them about Jakob, but Christaver remarked that he had been killed so many times before that no one could stay on longer on that account. Henry Robin said nothing. Large steamers and sailing vessels lay with their lanterns pitching when the seal, with three reefs in her sail, set out in the dark. The men on board knew it was a mad thing to do, since not even the steamers dared venture out, but no one cared to offer any advice to Christaver on the sea. The harbour light was soon lost in the driving snow. The seal rode upon huge, foaming billows, among islands and rocks round which the spray dashed high into the air. The men had to tie on their southwesters to keep them from blowing away, and the noise of the sea, the breakers, and the wind was deafening. In the forepart of the boat the men had to keep on bailing under a perpetual shower of water as the waves broke in over the bow. Everyone bailed except the man at the helm, who, with face dripping with sea-water, took note of nothing but the wind, the rigging, and the waves. Late in the day, when the snow fell less thickly, they rode on the storm wave into the harbour on the island of Grötöy. This is the last station before Lofoten, and there is only the west fjord to cross, but that is no small matter either. A number of people were standing on the shore, gazing at this stormy petrel that was coming in from the sea alone. The men on board looked like ghosts, with their white hair, white beards, and white eyebrows, and among the men's faces was a boy's face, with the water, either tears or sea-water, running down it. It was here that Aunt Olson, in the hearing of all his fellow-seamen, asked to be allowed to go home again in a steamer. No one answered him, not even Henry Robin. They were in the cabin, sawing themselves with coffee and a bite of food, when they heard shouts from another boat that was coming into the harbour. Lars put out his head, and as he drew it in again, said, "'It's actually Andreas Ekra.' At this his father laughed, and bringing out the bottle, poured out the dram. "'Ha-ha!' he said with a chuckle. "'That rascal wasn't first this time.' Some time later shouts were heard from another boat, 
and this time Eleazar's put his head out at the cabin door, but quickly drew it in again. "'No, confound it,' he said. "'I've seen a ghost.' "'What's the matter?' "'Jakob, and he was dead yesterday. As true as I stand here, he has just come sailing in with a sea-flower.' "'I knew he would,' said Gristaver. "'Jakob may let you think he is killed, but he doesn't mean anything by it.' It had been quickly rumoured in Bode that the boat had gone out in the storm, and this had vexed Andreas Ekra, whose custom it was to steal out in advance. He lost no time in setting out, and then Jakob had to follow him. And when the steamers learned that some open boats had found the weather good enough to sail in, they were obliged, for very shame, to hoot their way out. It was an old custom for the Namdal crews to wait on Grötte for the Stadslanders to come and thrash them. They themselves said it was the other way around, but that was not true. A great many Namdal boats were now lying there, getting up their courage to cross the West Fjord. These boats, like their owners, were a motley company. There were Lister boats, sloops, Nuland boats, and ten-oared boats of the Ofjord type, and the men themselves were fair or dark, but most of them little swarthy fellows, with sea-boots only to their knees, and trousers of blue sailcloth, with black patches behind. They looked as if they were made up of cheap shop material, and they were a mixture of a fisherman and what a true Lofoten voyager despises more than anything else, a sailor. It was not until the next day that the customary fighting began, it was up at the tradesmen, where both the shop and the bar were full of stadsmen. They became, perhaps, rather noisy toward evening, and perhaps sang a song or two. At any rate, the barmaid refused to supply them with more drink, and the fat shopkeeper came in himself in his flowery clothes and tried to turn them out. If he had not had a Namdal man with him, who began to be important and reprove them, the stadsmen would have gone away quietly, but as it was... They took the little man with the intention of throwing him out at the door, but, unfortunately, made a mistake and sent him through the window. The man lay moaning in the snow, with bits of glass in his hair and beard, and calling on his countrymen to help. Meanwhile the stadsman had become inclined for more drink, so they pushed the shopkeeper out at the door and locked the barmaid into a cupboard, and then busied themselves with opening bottles and turning on taps in such a way that everyone should benefit by it. Just as they had settled down quietly, however, with happy faces to enjoy themselves, Namdal men thronged in from all the doors, back and front. Things became livelier and livelier, not with drink, but with fists and brass tobacco-boxes as weapons. Tables, chairs, bottles, and glasses flew about, adding to the noise of heavy boots, shrieks, cries, and falls on the floor or through doors and windows. The barmaid in the cupboard shrieked that they must let her out, and the shopkeeper stood outside with the bailiff trying to get in, but in the meantime there was no room for them. The little Namdal men were supple and slipped close up to the big, heavy Trondhjem men, seizing them wherever it hurt most, and even flying at their throats and biting them. And this they called fighting. The Stad's men were slower, but when they hit a man he fell to the floor. 
Even Jacob was limping about, swinging his tobacco-box, though he stood for the most part in the doorway, and bestowed a parting kick upon every Namdal man who was thrown down the steps. The end was as might have been expected. The room was cleared of Namdal men, after which the others had an extra drink, paid for what they had had, and sauntered down to the boats again. Jacob was the only one left, for it was always his custom to treat the bailiff. All the evening and far into the night the Namdal men in the harbour were shouting and bleating like goats over the Stad's boats, for they knew that nothing could make them more angry than to call their big fine boats goaty boats. Grøttøy is a boundary stone on the voyage north. Up to it the boats have kept along the coast all the time and have been within sight of land, but to-morrow they will set out across the west fjord, over eighty-five miles of sea. Visions haunt the fisherman's mind the night before he starts, and his sleep is not as sound as usual. There are many sayings and stories about the west fjord. There is the fog that surrounds the boats some miles from land, while at the same time a storm rises and they drift westward, right up to the celebrated Malstrom, where they are whirled around as in a funnel and disappear into the depths. Much is fable, but it haunts the sleepers' minds, and there is at any rate one thing that everybody knows, and that is that on the stormy waters of the West Fjord many a boat has turned keel upward and the fishermen clinging to it have never been seen again. End of chapter 7